You're listening to The Ridge Weekly Podcast. To learn more about Chestnut Ridge Church, visit us online at theridge.church. In a world where the very concept of truth is under attack, we are called upon to know the truth and to be able to defend it. The truth can impact our relationship with God, and it can lead to true freedom. Unfortunately, many in our society no longer value the truth, and they don't know where to turn in order to find it. Listen to this talk from the series, Truth Is, as we seek to know how we can graciously stand firm in the truth as we face those in our society who look to undermine it. Well, hey, good morning. If, uh, if you're new with us today, my name's Josh Rhodes, one of the pastors here. Great to be together, to worship, to, to share in communion, just such a, such a joy. Um, we are continuing a series, uh, as Arch said, called Truth Is, and, and if this is your first time with us, this is actually part five of part seven, so we've got two more. In the first week of this series, Pastor Tim just reminded us that truth matters, that in a world that says there isn't truth and your truth, truth matters. And then we talked about how we can know the truth, which is God's word. Week three, we talked about how we can know the way to heaven, which is Jesus, the way, the truth in the life. And then last week I talked about the truth about people, each and every one of us, that we're, we're worse than we think we are, but we are more loved than we think we are. And today, for part five, we want to talk about the truth about life. We've talked about eternal life. Now, how about this life? Is there a right way to live according to God? My family enjoys being outside and enjoy outdoor activity. So the fact that each and every day is now getting longer makes me so happy. Anyone else? Just to see the sun at like six o'clock, it's like, yes. And I think the gopher or chipmunk or whatever he is from Pennsylvania didn't see a shadow or saw a shadow, but I heard it was good news. Like, I think we're getting closer. So when spring does come, um, you're going to see our family loading up our bikes and going down to the rail trail here in Morgantown, just going on a nice long ride. You'll see us uh, adventuring out to the various state parks around West Virginia. We have an old camper that we always have to pray real hard that it gets there where it's supposed to go, uh, or sometimes in a tent. But the other thing that we really enjoy is hiking. We've done it since the kids were little. You know those packs that you put on and put the kid in, and you're not sure if they're actually going to stay in there. But ever since they were little, we would go out hiking. And and sometimes Cooper's Rock and places like that, but we're blessed where we live. We've got the neighborhood on the front with all the kids and bikes, but on the back, it just butts up against the woods. So a lot of times we'll just go hike behind our house. And on one spring day, two years ago, we decided just to take a routine family hike. And I remember it well because it was our then foster son's very first hike with us. So as we went along, we went over the, the hill at our house, and we've, we've cleared it out over time, and we've kept it beaten down by walking it. And there's, there's no rocks, there's no briars to climb through. It's just a nice, clear path that goes from the, the top of our hill all the way down and then out into the woods. So we set out, right? So we set out going down our path down the hill, just routine. And I turn and look and I see him just going his own way. I mean, he just, you turn, 
you know, and he's going and he's going and he's going. And before I could get to him, he had gone several yards on a different direction and had climbed into this thorn briar kind of area. And you know, when you're stuck in thorns and briars like that, you, you kind of just have to stop and determine, all right, where am I caught and how am I going to get out of this? But poor kid is just like climbing through, ow, that hurt, climbing through, trying to pull out, and it's, it's got him head to toe. I mean, it's in his hair, it's on his shirt, it's around his, his pants. And by the time I got to him, he was crying, he was entangled, he was trapped. And there's nowhere that he could have gone once he got to that point. Now, when I think about that story, a particular proverb comes to mind. It's Proverbs 14, 12. It's actually repeated in Proverbs 16, 25. The scripture goes like this. There is a way that seems right to a man. There is a way that seems right to us. There are ways that seem good and that seem like it's going to work out just fine. But its end is the way to death. Now, for whatever reason, perhaps it was because he was probably new to hiking. I've kind of since put together. Maybe he saw something that caught his eye. But for whatever reason, he chose to leave our path our safe path, our clear path, and take his own path. And in a very short period of time, not only did it leave him trapped, but it left him in so much pain. Now, have you ever experienced something like that? You just know, here's the right path, here's the wrong path. I think about this about once a week, when I go to Walmart, and there's this little bag of donuts for about $2.50. It's an orange and white bag. I don't know if you know the ones I'm talking about. There's about a dozen in there, and they're really small. I know the right path is to not eat an entire bag of donuts in one sitting by myself. So very regularly, I choose the path of hiding from my children with my bag of donuts and just gobbling them all up. And then having some chips to go with it, right? And I end up with a stomach ache and I feel awful and I feel terrible about myself. I mean, this is our life, isn't it? We may know the right path. We may know the good path. We may know the path that is going to lead to flourishing and good things, but it seems like we choose the wrong path over and over again. I think about the couple who knew it was wise to live within their financial means, that they knew it's best to live within your means, but other people were getting their dream house and their dream car, so they took on way too much debt to get the house and to get the car and to keep up with the Jones. But where did that leave them? Strapped for cash, paycheck to paycheck, stressed. And not only that, they're, not now, they're no longer in a position to be generous. It seemed right, but it wasn't. Reflect on another person, maybe being stressed from never-ending work or family duties. And they decide, a little bit of drinking, some kind of substance, 
some other type of vice to help them cope and get through the day. But then gradually more and more and more until it spiraled out of control. It seemed right, but now they're trapped. Or the single person who was patiently waiting on God to bring a person into their life who shared their morals and their values, but they grew impatient and then he or she decided to get together with someone who they knew was not right or the married person, the married person who chose to get a little too comfortable with that friend or that coworker. No one's going to know. It's not going to hurt anyone. I can stop whenever I want. But it ended up going further than they thought possible. You see, the problem that we face isn't just our sin. That's a huge part of it. But it's also that we live in a time where there are many ways being promoted, many ways of life, many paths. I mean, doesn't our culture preach to us on a daily basis for you to do you? To be true to yourself, to know your path, to follow your heart? That's the message. It seems to me that God's Ten Commandments have been replaced with one. Do whatever you want that makes you happy. Just don't hurt anyone. I mean, isn't, isn't that the message? Do whatever you want. Just don't hurt anyone. And this philosophy may seem kind. It may seem enlightened. It may seem more free. It is the way that seems right to mankind. But is it? Is it? You see, the truth is doing life God's way is the only life-giving way. And that's not an arrogant statement. That, that's, that is just the truth. If God made us, as we talked about last week, he formed us in his image, can't we conclude that God's way of us doing life would be right? And I gave some, some larger examples you know, taking on the mortgage or, or these types of larger things. But think about the day-to-day -day choices. I mean, if you just read Proverbs, for instance, it's going to tell us working hard and being diligent is going to be better than being lazy. It's just going to work out better for you. Using our words to be truthful and build others up is going to be better than lying and tearing people down, isn't it? Scripture says it's better to be clear-minded than to be drunk, this is just the truth. God's way is better. But what we know from our experience is it's definitely not always easy to go God's way. And oftentimes it feels like we're missing out, doesn't it? We see people taking a path. We see people living recklessly. We see people not giving any regard for God's ways, and it may seem more fun. And one other thing I'll mention getting started here is I think to be a Christian particularly in this country a while back, was as if you had the wind on your back as you sought to walk in God's ways. To where culturally, what God says was right or wrong, good or evil, wise or unwise, that generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, our culture would kind of move us along in that direction. But now to be a Christian in this moment in time, it feels like if we're wanting to go God's ways, the wind is no longer at our back. It's like a gale force wind in our face. <laughs> we're trying to move in God's direction. A culture 
that says what God says is right, that's not right. That's backwards. And what God says is wrong, is celebrated, is encouraged. This is where we are. Therefore, it is vital that we know the difference between the paths of righteousness and the paths of the unrighteous. It's also vital that we remember that we cannot do this on our own, that we have to rely on God's Spirit to give us the strength and the desire and the wisdom to go in His way when it seems like everyone else is going the other way. Now, before we dig into one main New, pa New Testament passage, I want to read just some brief background information because this idea of two paths goes way, way back. So from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, you want to read a little bit of a lengthier quote, a lot of Bible references. If you don't catch them, grab them on the app, grab them on our website, theridge.church slash notes. You can find all of this. So the entry says this, path, a walkway. Two contrasting paths are a common image for rival ways of life in Hebrew wisdom literature. The path of the wicked who forgot God is crooked. This approach to life contrasts with the path of righteousness. Think of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me along the paths of righteousness. This alternate path is also called the path of God and of light. This path entails living by the commands or instructions of the Lord. The reward for following this path of life is life. The wise are those who follow in this way, and the paths of justice, peace, and righteousness refer to the practice of these qualities. And if you were to read the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, this wisdom literature, and then as we look to the New Testament, where we don't so much see that, but we see the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, to follow the way of the Spirit and not the flesh, it's just this idea that there is a way to do life God's way, and it just is going to work out better for us. And I think to, to, to summarize that entry, I look to Proverbs chapter 4, 26 and 7. It says this, carefully consider the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet from evil. So what does this look and feel like? What does this look and feel like for someone maybe to be on the path, but then to take the wrong path and end up in a place they didn't intend to be? And what does it look like for that person to be brought back home? Well, I can't think of any better example than the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. And if you're not familiar, this is one of Jesus's most famous parables where he talked about a lost sheep. And he talked about a lost coin, and he talked about the lost son. And he gave these parables in response to a regular accusation that Jesus faced. We're going to read that as we begin Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, to Jesus. They felt welcomed by him. They felt like they could draw close to Jesus, the ones who are normally pushed back. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. 
this man welcomed sinners and eats with them. This was a common accusation that Jesus faced. So this response then is that finding the lost sheep and finding the lost coin and finding the lost son demonstrate God's heart. This is why he came, for those who knew they need a savior. And it's contrasted with the older brother mentality, the self-righteous, the hypocritical, the I I don't need a savior, I don't need help, I'm good. But as we come to this passage today, I just want us to see it through the lens of our takeaway, which again is doing life God's way is the only life-giving way. Because in this story that Jesus tells, he paints a picture of the son who goes the path of the wicked. He goes in the way of the unrighteous, and we're going to see where that leads him. But why I love this parable so much is because it doesn't just leave him there, but it shows how he's brought back home. So with that said, we're going to pick it back up in verse 11 after he talks about the sheep and the coin and now to the son. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now, just like our culture today, if you were to go to your parents, if I were to go to my parents who were still living and say, I want my share of the inheritance, that's almost unthinkable. I mean, that is to say, I wish you were dead. But that's what he did. And the father obliged. And we know from Deuteronomy 21, the older brother would have got two thirds. He would have got one third. We don't know the specific amount, but I would assume it was substantial. Now he's got this money, and before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge that oftentimes when we see people going the different path, it can almost look like the grass is greener, right? I want to spend my money however I want to spend. I want to text whoever I want to text. I want to go wherever I want to go. The grass looks greener. And I remember a time in high school when I told my parents, I just want to learn the hard way. Why are you so focused on keeping me on the right path? And That's because mom said, Josh, you don't want to learn the hard way. You don't know what's at the end of that path, but I'm sure that's how that older brother felt. He's got this money. He's about to go have some fun. Picking it up in 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. So with his money in hand, he left for another country, and he begins to walk the path of the unrighteous. It doesn't say how long it took for him to squander his money, but you get the idea that it didn't take long. And it says that that he, he engaged in foolish living, and we might think foolish, that's just poor choices. The Greek behind that is really, really strong. It's this word, It's a sotos, extravagantly wasteful because of loose living. This is actually where we get the word prodigal when we say the prodigal son. It's defined as this. A prodigal is one who spends too much, who slides easily under the fatal influence of flatterers and the temptations with which he has surrounded himself into spending freely on his own lusts and appetites, a dissolute, debauched, profligate manner of living. 
You know, I think the closest visual that we might have is someone winning the lottery or getting an inheritance and they take $50,000 or they take $100,000 and they go to Las Vegas and they party it up and they do whatever they want. No one and nothing is off limits. This is kind of the visual that we're getting of this guy. I have no regard for what's right and wrong. I'm going to do whatever I want. But eventually... The fun runs out, the money runs out, and he was left with nothing. Continuing in verse 15, Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the karab pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. I mean, he's far from home. He blew his inheritance. He's now got to find work. So he becomes the bottom of the, 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 the barrel. I mean, there is no, no further way down than he can go. And for a Jewish person, not only, I mean, they weren't even supposed to touch a pig, yet he was wanting to eat their food. I mean, this is a picture of rock bottom. So how does he respond? Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. I mean, the path of the wicked seemed right to him. It seemed like it would be fun. It seemed like it would be free. But where did that leave him? No money. No family, no food, literally dying of hunger. Isn't that what we read in Proverbs? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So how does he respond? How does he respond at rock bottom? He responds with repentance. Repentance simply means to turn around and go in the right way. So verse 20, we pick it back up. So he got up and went to his father. But while the father was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The father said, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, quick, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I mean, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, truly a master storyteller. You don't get a better scene than that. It's like the climax of this incredible movie that we're watching. He comes to his senses and he begins to come home. And and we see that the father was watching for him and waiting for him. And when he saw him, he ran to him. And he hugged his son. And he kissed his son. And because of what that son had done, basically saying, I wish you were dead, in living however he wanted, abusing others, hurting others. He felt so unworthy. He felt so unworthy, so the father proved it all the more. 
He put the robe back on his back. He put the ring back on his finger. He put the sandals back on his feet. And then he threw a party. (laughs) The father's response to his lost son coming back home, coming back to the right path is exactly what God can do for each and every one of us. I was encouraged by this note in my study Bible this week. It says this, in this story, the father watched and waited. He was dealing with a human being with a will of his own. He was ready to greet his son when he returned. In the same way, God's love is constant, patient, and welcoming. He will search for us and give us opportunities to respond, but he will not force us to come to him. Like the father in the story, God waits patiently for us to come to our senses and come to him. Now, how can we apply this to our life? Well, first and foremost, I just want to encourage us to trust God that he knows what's best. To trust that God's ways are better. Because the world around us, our enemy, and our own sinful flesh lies to us. It promotes all sorts of paths, all sorts of ways that promise the world but leave nothing. I want to encourage you to even consider memorizing this proverb. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways. And he will guide you on the right paths. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. I've always loved that scripture because of the truth it says. It says if we trust him, if we lean into him, if we go to him in prayer and open up his word, it says he will guide us on the right path. He will bring us where we need to go. A life marked by joy and a life marked by peace. A life that will honor God by obeying him. A life that will help us flourish. And a life that will keep us from pain. That's the part of this that's a warning to us. Is we don't have to learn the hard way like I wanted to in high school. We can trust God to lead us on the right path and live the life he has for us. Now, the other scripture that's important for us to remember is from Isaiah, a prophecy about Jesus 700 years before, and it it says this. It says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The reality is, is that because of our sin, the Bible says we deserve death. So when we walk the path of sin and we become entangled, the scripture says that we deserve death. We've all gone astray. We've all gone this way. But he died for us. He died to set us free. God punished him instead of us. So that's how we come to faith in Christ and get set free. But here's what I know. We will time and time again leave the right path and go with the path of the unrighteous. We will. Until we see him, we will not be like him, and we will continue to struggle. 
So my encouragement to us today is as we get off the right path and we're going on the wrong path, just acknowledge it, to repent, to stop, to confess that to God and name it. This is wrong. This is a path I know is only going to lead to heartache, only going to lead to despair. And ask God to free you from that entanglement, to free you from being trapped. And trust that he'll get you back on to the right path. Here's what I know. A lot of times when we choose to go life against God and go our own way, we become convinced that God hates us, that he's angry at us, that our life is over. And now there are still consequences for sure, but God loves us. He is the father in the story who stands ready to bring us back home. So if that's you today, and you say, Josh, I've been walking that wrong path. Maybe it's within relationships. Maybe it's within money. Maybe it's within technology. Whatever the case may be, just stop. Turn. Go back to the Father. He's waiting with open arms. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. We thank you that you love us so much that you want to put us on the right path. That you want us to live a life that leads to joy and peace. That leads to healthy relationship with you and with others. And God, we ask that you help us walk that path. We ask that you help us stay on that path. But we also recognize, God, that we are like the sheep who go astray. We're like the prodigal who walk away. So God, I just pray when we go there and as we're tempted to go there and that you would just remind us, God, that you're still a God who forgives and a God who loves. And it's never too late to come back home. Would you help us believe these things in Jesus' name? Amen.